Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. Uh, my name is Gonzalo Herrero. I'm the architecture program curator here at the RA. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the first event in this series, Designing Urban Identities. Today, uh, in this new uh, RA series of debate, we will explore the degree to which the architecture design for the upcoming developments in different areas of London is helping to shape or erode uh, the tapestry of the city. We identify with the cities and the neighborhoods in which we live, uh, but cities are also saved by us, and they reflect our needs and values as a society. When we choose to live in, certain, in a certain district, this is because we relate to its built environment, its architecture, its people, and what it offers to our daily lives. However, cities are in a continuous transformation, and so are their identities. Today we will discuss three different key projects currently shaping uh, the cityscape and identity of East London, which are, here is, the Royal Albert Dock and Barking Riverside. We will start the um, presentation with Roger Hawkins, uh, who is an architect and partner at Hawkins Brown, the architecture practice uh, that he founded in 1988 with Russell Brown. And behind the new mixed-use digital quarter here is a project located at the, as you probably know, at the former press and broadcast centers at the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park and developed by the Mayoral London Legacy Development Corporation. Roger Hawkins uh, will be followed by um, the second project, which is the Royal Albert Dock, uh, the business district in the London Doglands, presented by Peter Barbalov, architect and design partner at Farrell's, the architecture and planning office uh, in charge of the master plan design. The third and last project is the Barking Riverside, a joint venture between LQ and the Mayor of London, which is one of the largest development sites in the UK right now, as well as one of the new house building hotspots on the north side of the Thames River. The project is presented by Matthew Carpen, project director of Barking Riverside Limited. The event will start with a 10-minute presentation from these three speakers, followed by, our, um, by some comments and questions from our respondent panel, uh, yeah, before we begin, I would like to thank uh, the Drew Heinz Endowment for Architecture and Taki Sarami for supporting the architecture program and, uh, here at the Royal Academy. Now please uh, give a warm welcome to our first speaker, Roger Hawkins. Um, good evening, everyone. I'm, I'm going to talk about the, um, the Broadcast and Media Centre at, um, at the Olympic Park. Um, and in games mode, the uh, Olympic Park had half a million visitors in the few, um, few weeks of the Olympics. These grab grey buildings here um, are the, are the um, so-called uh, media centre. The International Broadcast Centre is 800,000 square feet. Uh, the main press centre is 350,000 square feet. Um, and an auditorium in a yard in the middle. Um, the buildings were subject to quite a lot of cost-cutting in the lead-up to the Olympics. 2008 recession, 2009, um, there was quite a lot of value engineering on these, these projects. But it was seen as, as a success during games mode. There were 20,000 um, journalists, broadcasters and technical staff based in these buildings. I think much of um, the emphasis of the Olympic bid was about the planned legacy uh, you know, let's not forget that this 560-acre site was wasteland, uh, much of it covered with 13 metres of rubble dumped there following the Blitz. 
Um, the soil was cleaned together with removal of over 50 electrical pylons. Um, it, the site was transformed. And in legacy, I don't think there was much doubt with what was going to happen to a lot of the buildings. The, the, the velodrome was always going to be the velo park, a centre for British cycling. The Athletes' Village, which housed 17,000 athletes and officials during the Games, is now 3,500 homes um, and another 3,000 in the pipeline. The Aquatic Centre, which looks so much better now it's lost its wings, is used for swimming. Um, the Olympic Stadium, now the London Stadium, is home for West Ham. So what about the Media Centre? What was the planned legacy for the Media Centre? Well, in 2009, when it was subject to this value engineering and when there was um, public money going into the building of the, of the Media Centre, Jules Pipe, who was then Mayor of Hackney, said that the Media Centre represents the single most significant opportunity for an economic legacy for East London from the Games. But no one really knew that was going to be delivered, and it was, um, it was just before the Games in uh, 2012 when um, iCity, which is a joint venture between Delancey and Infinity, were given the, the title of preferred bidder to take on this project. And their bid talked about a focus on jobs and training, um, and just looking at words from that bid, they talked about um, high-tech digital industries, startup and scale-up business, innovation and creative businesses, um, and the maker movement. We've been working on the project for um, about four years now, helping to create a new identity to these buildings. Um, we've just finished a two-year, £100 million um, reorganisation and recladding by, by Lang O'Rourke. And currently on site, the internal fit-out is well underway. So this photograph um, of the broadcast centre taken from the yard shows, I think, some of the changes. Everything below the parapet line here is new. Um, so we were, we've cut new entrances into the building, we've, we've projected balconies from the building, and we've reclad it, we've reglazed, reglazed the building. What I want to do is to give a sense of the scale of these buildings. Um, the, the broadcast centre is uh, 275 metres long, um, and they're very deep planned spaces. What, what we talked about was um, a sort of cus a crust and a core. The crust itself is um, based on an 8 metre grid and is actually 16 metres deep. So you can get some natural ventilation and daylight into the first 16 metres, but beyond that you've got very deep planned space. And what were we planning for those, uh, those parts of the building? Well, in there are um, TV recording studios used by BT Sport. BT Sport have been on site since 2013. There's also um, the Infinity Data Centre. Again, what they want is a deep plan dark box. That's what they've got. Um, since then, we've been moving in people like uh, Loughborough University um, and UCL Robotics are currently fitting out their, their building. Um, there's some artist studios, Wayne McGregor Dance Studio. There's an innovation centre within the press centre. That's 60,000 square foot of space and other small and, and medium-sized office space. But to get a sense of scale, in that 275-metre-long building, you could park four jumbo jets wingtip to wingtip. Um, there's a model of these buildings within the, the, um, uh, within the centre, and they've got a, a model of Canary Wharf, which you actually put on its side, is actually sh it's shorter than the length of the building. It's, it's quite a bold move when you've got 1.2 million square feet of space to add additional floors, but we felt that the scale of the building, everything was double height, was wrong for people to work in. So we've added mezzanine space to just bring 
um, the scale down a little bit. And we, we, as I mentioned, we've cut these new entrances in. There are three new lobbies in the building. Each one has a different identity. There's the timber, uh, the timber yard. This is actually a photograph of timber yard. Uh, we have a, a fabric workshop um, and a metal shop. This is, is actually hanging above the entrance, and it's a big enough room for 15 people to sit around a me meeting desk. And each of them were made um, from sheets of plywood and a, a digital technology and a CNC cutting. Starting to look at the fit-out, the, the UCL um, robotics are, are moving in over the summer, and this is going to be a, um, where they're doing postgraduate research into augmented systems and new technology of making. So um, here East are very excited about the spin-offs linking to the, um, the research that's going to go on in, in this building. The gantry, which in games mode housed the um, air handling plant for the 30 TV studios, um, was in legacy going to be removed? And, and we said, well, why don't we keep it? Why don't we think of this as a, as a shelf, as a cabinet of curiosities um, to, to reuse as a series of workshops or pop-ups? which everyone was quite excited about, apart from the planning authority who got a bit concerned of what's it actually going to look like. So we developed a, um, a design guide and a palette of materials, and it's been let to uh, Space Studios. So there's 24 different studios now moving in. We've designed, using this um, uh, palette of materials, 24 bespoke units, each for a different artist. And this is a, this is a new image. We've just got planning permission for this and the work is going to be starting on site over the summer, will be finished by the end of the year. So on site, we have completed the uh, enabling work, so added new means of escape, we've had to look at service rises, we've had to look at fire separation between the various uh, units. So that image uh, is currently that, and the fitting out of these individual units is going to start. Again, we're using um, new technology. They're all being cut using WikiHouse technology from sheets of plywood moving on to site. I think the, the yard space is, is going to be uh, multifunctional. They, they want to use it for um, events and launches and exhibitions ranging from driverless cars, which they've had in there, to drone racing, to fashion shoots. One of our issues is how we disguise the size of this building. And what we developed was a dazzle pattern um, based on some of the World War I um, uh, images of, of uh, naval ships where they use this dazzle pattern to disguise the size of some of the ships. And we developed a digital technology where ceramic dots were printed onto sheets of glass. Every glass has got a different pattern. There are over six million dots forming um, these dazzle patterns ar around the building. Each pane of glass is different, as I said. The same contractor, Lango Rourke, did this building while they were doing the cheese grater, the same subcontractor, who was amazed to find out that there's more glass here than there is actually on the cheese grater. Then the press centre um, has been mainly internal refurbishment, but what we've added here are um, yellow uh, extract flues to kitchens below and some yellow sunscreens. Um, and then the kitchens below serve what's called canal side, where there's a variety of independent traders, um, artisan bakers, bars, restaurants along canal side. So canal side, which has the benefit of this sort of afternoons and evening sun and park against the River Lee, has really become a bit of a local destination. Um, this photograph I love, I, I, I see the, um, this tag here, I'm assuming is sunny. Um, I'm assuming in Here East it's more Sony, 
Um, but I, I, I quite like the, the, the interventions that we've made with the dazzle patterns and the, the, the yellow flues starting to um, merge with the, the um, urban graffiti that's within Hackney Wick. And, and what I think it's important to do is to put Hare East in context. It's much closer geographically to Hackney Wick than it is to Stratford International and the International Quarter. Um, Bruce Katz, who's researched in to innovation districts, talks about this proximity to uh, different types of working environment and proximity to what he calls assets. So people um, can work, rest and play in the same area, people living next to their workplace. Um, so it's no coincidence, I think, that our client Delancey are also involved in uh, Eastwick um, and building new residential homes around, around Hare East. So currently in Hare East there are about a thousand permanent people based there. By the end of the year it'll be three thousand and when full there'll be over five and a half thousand permanent positions in Hare East. So I think in legacy what Jules Pike was talking about eight years ago about creating employment is actually now being demonstrated in this building. Thank you. Hi there, I'm Peter Babalov and I'm going to talk about the Royal Albert Docks. And it's interesting, there's, there's some similarities about what Roger was talking about, especially the connectivity and the proximity of working. Um, Royal Albert Docks is a project we've been involved for the last five or six years. It's quite big, it's a 35 acres of brownfield site. It has been not developed before, it used to be a commercial dock. Uh, and what we're proposing is a comprehensive master plan, which is about 50% of the site will be public realm. We have about half a million square meters of new development. It will generate about 20,000 jobs. And also, it's a mixed-use development. There will be about 1,000 homes on site. Uh, it's based around public realm, and uh, it's opening a large vast of the public open, of the water space to the public. Uh, what you, you can see on the picture there this stretch, which is over a kilometre long, was never ever open to actually to the public. There's, there's a ways of going there now because of the university, which is to the south, to the, sorry, to the east, uh, but it's actually not being available to people. So it's, it's actually creating a new place. It's creating a new identity for, for this part of London. Uh, and how do you do that? And for 100 years, the docks were the working place uh, for London, you know. It, it was all about connectivity. They were bringing... Um, goods and services from across the globe, but it was a place which was buzzing and a lot of things were happening there. And then the docks closed and in the, in the 80s uh, there was hardly anything happening there. So what happened since then, a lot of money was put into infrastructure and big scale developments including um, Excel, which is just there, uh, City Airport, 85, uh, DLR and a, and a road network. So it, it's like the infrastructure was built there and also the uh, Thames Barrier Park as part of the overall infrastructure for London. So the infrastructure was put there to enable future developments and this was all well and good. And it's incredibly well connected and the future transport links coming in, Crossrail is coming, uh, Elizabeth Line is coming very close to Customs House and connecting all the way to the other side of the river. And there's other plans to enhance that. There's also the, uh, the, uh, the cable car is coming across there. So it's very well connected, uh, and it's a large-scale infrastructure, airport, and everything like that. And it is important because uh, London is growing. Uh, 
we are growing quite a lot, and I'll come back to the master plan in a second, but it, the growth is quite significant, and I hope it's going to stay that way. We are talking about one million more people in London by 2025, which is the size of Birmingham. Uh, London is growing quite significantly. By 2050, there will be three Birminghams on top of current London. So it's all about new jobs. It's all about creating uh, connectivity. So half of that London growth must be in East London. There's not much land anywhere else. There's more than one million additional people coming there very quickly. And it's really important that we address this quickly. And uh, one of our early, very early studies, which we've done a few years back now, is that how do you do large-scale regeneration? And it's always been about places. It's not really about people. It's, all about, it's been about landscape. And it's about connectivity. Um, so what happens to the docks? They're empty. In East London, the river and its docks were once full of ships, and they used to be thriving with activity. There was a lot of things happening, and they are, they are empty now. Now, uh, kind of things are changing as we speak. Uh, and one of the things I want to talk about very briefly is about pedestrian connectivity, because it's important, because it's one thing to be able to walk 10 minutes across to somewhere, and it's another thing to having to take a DLR, to take a Jubilee line, or anything like that. And uh, we've discussed this before. It's, there's only one crossing uh, uh, east of Tower Bridge. So we need to be addressing this thing. And bridges and the river, bridges across the river are like crossings on the street. So it, the more we can connect people across <coughs> south and north, uh, across the docks, the more we can actually create places for people and bring all this together. So it's the idea that all these great developments can actually come together. Um, so it's, we can create new waterfront communities and promote metropolitan growth. And I think Bucking Riverside is another example of an opportunity which we can look at that. So what's the next 100 years for the docks? As you can see there, this is a picture taken a few years back. Uh, how do we turn this? How do we create a place? We start from master plan. We tell stories. We look at what's happening on the site before. We weave patterns. This is a sketch, a very early sketch of the concept. It's the weaving of the patterns of working along the river, of making a working river. Uh, we create master plans, and we also create uh, places for people. The key point of Robert Docks is there will be a place where people can hang around, they can do things. There's, there's eight urban new London squares which are creating as part of the development. And of course, there's also phase one, is where you start, and it's really important that phase one is actually a place at each phase. So we are starting our phase one centrally to the development. If I go back to the master plan, there's only two existing buildings on site which are here. There's two uh, small-scale listed buildings. So we are starting the development there, connecting it across, uh, facing the dock, and linking north and south into the development. Uh, it's about 600,000 square foot, phase one. Uh, which is a bit smaller than, than Rogers East uh, building, but it's still quite significant uh, improvement. The overall development is about 4.5 million square feet, so there will be a place there. And it's a series of, of different typologies of buildings. The, we have a front side buildings, which are limited by the height of the airport, but they're also a particular type of, like we call it the terrace houses. So it, each individual unit is an individual, one of these is a building which people can actually buy and take and have a, an office there. So it's a slightly different model from the normal uh, London development where you have big plate office buildings and you have a central core. These are individual units. They are for people to actually start a business. Uh, a lot of these units are for sale, and they're for sale a lot in the Middle East and in, sorry, in the Far East, because the idea is that uh, 
the Chinese developer who is in charge of that ABP, they actually bring uh, China economy into the UK. They're also for sale for local businesses too. And there's also another type of building, which is the big type A office building, uh, which is a central core big office plate. So uh, we are working on this in phase one. They are taking some cues from, the, from what was there before. We believe there's, there's, there's a, a kind of a robust, strong architectural presence. These are the two listed buildings. Uh, which are currently on site, they will be refurbished, and they, they are the legacy of what was there before, and then new uh, commercial district evolving from that. Uh, these are some of the images of the development as it is now. We have planning for this, uh, detail phase is approved, and as we speak, we are currently started on site, I think with day 12, with the contractor building uh, these buildings. We have multiplex on site, uh, developing these buildings in more detail. Uh, they're quite flexible. They are potentially convertible into residential buildings. Uh, they're big, concrete, uh, simple uh, framed buildings. And this is what was there last week. They're enabling uh, the site, clearing the, 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 the effectively what was there before to start putting the, uh, the piling mats and starting building on the site. We have large-scale mock-ups, which are currently on site, looking at how we develop the architecture and the detail of the buildings. Uh, statistics are interesting. There's, there's in phase one, there's about two football pitches of bricks, which is quite a lot, I thought, which is about a million bricks just under to create that. Uh, but we're using a, a unitized system for, for, the, for the actual development of the, of the architecture. But it's all about how we bring it back. So it is about a connected place. It's about transport, it's infrastructure. Buildings can only work if they're part of a large development. And the connected workplace which and uh, opportunities which are happening in East London is something which we are very keen and passionate about. So as I said, it's, it's, a, it's something which will evolve. It will be a new London quarter. And we think it's going to bring much new uh, development and kind of opportunities into that part of London. And that is me. Thank you very much. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Matt Carpenter. I'm project director for Barking Riverside. Um, and I'm going to take you through a few slides just to talk about um, some similar, similar things, actually, to um, Roger and Peter. Um, it's actually about scale and... Rail, yeah, here we go. So rail, rail is um, in the last. I've spent the last few years trying to get this project going. Um, I'm not an architect. Uh, I'm more of a builder. Uh, I worked for the mayor for the last ten years. So Ken Livingston, Boris, and and Sadiq. And uh, this project has struggled to get off the ground because of the connectivity, um, which is a common theme in regeneration in uh, across the world. Um, although when you think about Certainly places like central London, getting up and down uh, the tube, it's actually quicker to walk most short journeys than actually get the tube. But out here, East London, this image just shows you the site that I'm responsible for, which is 10,800 homes in East London, just up the road from uh, the Royal Docks, which you were just looking at. So the Royals is... Uh, you can see it just here. My, my site is this one here. <clears throat> And my job was to get a railway, so I spent the last two years, two and a half years, trying to find £263 million. Um, and I got it, yay! So <laughs> they start building the railway next, uh, next year, and we've done a public inquiry, and so my little bit is that, that bit there, which, although it's small, it unlocks 
this big site, which is, I'm just going to take you through bit, little bits of it just to give you an idea of what it is. But it's in this kind of context of, um, sorry, it's in this context of residential and really heavy industry and um, a really challenging site, um, old industrial power station um, with difficult access with a motorway that runs across the top, the A13. But it sits in this opportunity area identified by the Mayor of London for about 30,000 homes. So there's a load of other sites that sit in this context. So me bringing the railway there starts to unlock parts of that. History, I mean, history is such an important part of any kind of regeneration project. And um, you'll, you know, you'll think about the slightly prettier sister of Barking Power is Battersea Power Station. Um, most of the buildings on my site have been demolished, but it, it's got an equally rich history opened in 1925 by King George V. Uh, that's him there in one of my old buildings, looking slightly possessed, but he was there um, in this building, which is there, and one of the buildings that we, we'll look to keep, and there's another one just off the shop, uh, which is another switching building. Um, these be this is beautiful architecture, 19... 20s, 30s architecture, um, and on the 179 hectare estate, so that red, big red line that you saw in the image, um, there's, a, there's about seven trees, and they all sit around these buildings, and they're London plains, they're beautiful, but trees is something that, you know, is such an important and inherent part of any regeneration project. Um, there's some aerials here of the site and the context of it. So that, that image of where the power station was chugging out, um, three big power station buildings along here, that's where King George was, and there's that red brick. And this was the coal wharf, so coal was sat here being dumped and, and burnt, burnt within the power station. But it just shows you uh, the legacy of the site. It's littered with uh, pylons. But this is London's brownfield sites, and there's many... You know, there's many constraints across East London, but these are the sites that are going to come forward. <coughs> and you can see, I'm going to show you an image of the master plan now, but if you just remember this image here of the curve, this is the first road we started building. It wasn't there a year ago, it's there now. It's another shot of it. Um, that's the master plan, and that, this is about to get consent next month, um, if I can get Transport for London to sign the Section 106, which hopefully I will. Um, you can see that curve that I showed you a second ago is this here. And one of the biggest challenges trying to knit this into a really deprived part of London, uh, high levels of deprivation, um, lots of social housing around, you know, around this part of the site. Well, how do you, how do you start to integrate this development uh, into that? Um, I'll talk about that in a second when I get to the bit on homes, but just on... The legacy, this is a view of the, of the wharf. Um, this is a pirate ship, a true, true story. This pirate turned up, um, docked his boat, wouldn't pay any rent, so it took me a year to get rid of him. But it's just another story of East London's rich, kind of bizarre, uh, bizarre things that happen. I mean, he wouldn't go. He just, from Nigeria, he turned up. He wouldn't go anywhere. Um, so he moored and then he, he went off, but um, I found three horses on another part of the estate. You know, where did they come from? They just appear. It's um, East London. But this is the kind of... How do you embrace this kind of bizarre structure of East London's rich heritage and 
things that go on and kind of integrate into this kind of thing that you see on every image in every newspaper. This is the future of housing. Well, you know, this is this is the challenge really for me as director of this project is I've got a board who want to see this delivered in 15 years, 600 homes a year. But the place is the challenge and I I struggle with this word because I sometimes don't really know what it means, but I know what I like. I'm sure you all know what you like uh, in terms of precedence. I really love that Heary stuff that um, that Roger's talking about, and I've been there and I drive past it quite a lot. It's amazing. Uh, I love King's Cross. That What they've done at King's Cross is fascinating. Um, for me, I've got to come up with something else, another place. Everyone talks about place. Character areas. Um, it's really difficult because it just ends up looking very similar. But, you know, we appoint architects and design teams to do this stuff and bring uh, some kind of uh, coding and uh, originality to these places. And I think uh, they all have their differences and they all celebrate their differences, which is really important. And these images just show you, uh, this is a meanwhile use square. Now I've got a master plan, which I showed you in that image there. Um, I don't really know what we're going to do with the middle of this site, so I've told the architects, well, I don't really know what we're going to do, so can you leave that space clear? Because we might put an arena there, we might put something even more significant in there. Um, but for now, as far as I'm concerned, this is, the, you know, this bottom bit alone is the size of Granary Square, this central bit is the size of Somerset House, and this is the size of Trafalgar Square. Um, until we start to deliver this project and see how it responds to the market, it's difficult to start plopping and parachuting in buildings. So context, market, it's all really relevant to how you bring big sites like this forward. Um, some images just of the architecture designed by Alex Lifshitz at LDS and his team. And then quickly, just on the homes, <clears throat> it's 10,800, it's 50% affordable, it's the Mayor of London and London and Quadrant projects. We've delivered a thousand homes to date. These are designed by Shepherd Robson. These are award-winning. I don't know whether you know that. I get mixed mixed comments about the brick. There's a Dutch style to this, um, but the dark brick. Some people like it. Some people don't. Um, but this is this is really good stuff. I mean, it's affordable. These sell for three hundred and seventy-nine thousand in in London is uh, you know unheard of. Um, and then people. So we're we're really trying to knit this into the community, um, which is a real big challenge. The last thing I wanted to talk about was energy and waste. We're doing a district heat network, is, which is common practice among big schemes in London. But this is the stuff which is really interesting, which is this MVAC uh, waste vacuum collection system. This is, I took my board over to Stockholm to have a look at this, which they quite enjoyed. Um, it's based on you separating your waste, as you probably do now, uh, you drop it into uh, organised and fob entry points here, and it, there's a collection station about a kilometre away. It sits on a hopper here. You drop your, your recyclables, your black bag and your green, and then every hour or so, when this reaches a point, some big fans turn on here, and it sucks it up the chute at 70 miles an hour. You've got no chance. Um, <laughs> So this kind of technology is done at Wembley. So this is Wembley. So Quintain did it at Wembley. And uh, when we went over to... I took the board over to Stockholm. The, the biggest challenge with it was the nature of a transient population. And I, my challenge to my design team and to MVAC is 
how do you make that fit for Londoners, Londoners who struggle to put black bags in, in, um, in a Euro bin, let alone um, organise, you know, a typical London bin store is, is on most accounts quite horrendous. Um, it's difficult for young children to throw black bags into Euro bins. So this starts to try and tease that out. And I think for a project like Barking Riverside, it's about pushing the boundaries on technology. Now, this might not work, I don't know, but we're going we're gonna to try. And I think um, collecting waste like we have been doing for the last 100 years seems to be uh, a slightly odd uh, thing. When you go over to Scandinavia and to other parts of Europe, Barcelona, this is common. It's about 60 years old. The technology is not new. It's very, it's very established. It's more about the mindset of buying a flat or renting a flat and getting into that habit of taking your waste to the bin every time you leave the flat or the house. That's it from me. I hope you've got something out of that. But Park and Riverside is um, one of the biggest projects in the UK. So do come and visit. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Matt, uh, Peter, and Roger, for your presentation. Now I would like to invite to join on the stage to our panel of respondents. We will start with uh, Charles Samares, who is uh, Smith, who is secretary and chief executive at the Royal Academy of Art and great connoisseur of East London. He has uh, recently released his book, who will be which will be available uh, during the drinks after. Uh, called East London and published by Ten Hudson. Uh, he will be followed by Puja Agraval. He's an architect, urban designer, and senior project officer at the regeneration team at the Great Greater London Authority. Puja is also working on launching a new social enterprise called uh, Public Practice to embed a talented practitioner within local authorities to build the public sector's capacity to build homes and support collaborative planning. Prior to joining the GLA, uh, Puja worked as an architect at We Made That and urban designer at Publica. Uh, our last respondent is Andreas Lang. Uh, he's an architect based in East London co-founder of Public Works and the Civic University, and course leader and tutor at the Master of Architecture at Central St. Martins at University Arts of London. A quick last note to congratulate Andreas, for, who was awarded last week to, with the Carriston Design Prize uh, as part of the 2017 Social Design Circle. So as I said at the beginning, uh, you will be allocated 10 minutes. Uh, <laughs> you can make uh, each. Uh, so you, will, you can make a comment and uh, two questions to the panel of speakers. So as three respondents said beforehand, because we well, are similar to respond to what was said by the panel, we're not necessarily going to speak for 10 minutes precisely each. We're going to respond individually and then possibly collectively and then open it up to the floor for discussion. <coughs> I mean, I realise I'm in a particularly tricky position to respond because I've just published this book, which is called East London, but it's on the historic East London, which is uh, west of the River Lee. It's on all the bits from Whitechapel uh, through to the Isle of Dogs and Poplar, up the River Lee, up to Hackney. And it doesn't cover exactly the area which is now being regenerated, which is all the area east of the River Lee. So, Almost nothing that my book is about is relevant <laughs> <laughs> to these large-scale projects, except that my reading of what happened, um, I have to think, I'll get into muddlers, 
west, west of the River Lee is that you had the big intervention of central government through the London Docklands Development Corporation and through Canary Wharf. So that's an equivalent to what's happening uh, um, further east with these big projects which are essentially funded either by the GLA or through the GLA by central government. So that is happening, but then a lot of the regeneration uh, um, in the historic neighbourhoods was made possible by the existence of a great deal of surviving, in some cases, 18th century architecture, but a huge legacy of 19th century architecture, and then some very fine, I think, post-war, big, grand housing developments by the LCT architects, so that you're able to construct a system of regeneration which is based on regenerating surviving buildings, which much as I think there are interesting buildings in West Ham and Dagenham and Upminster, they are much fewer and further between, so that the problems, I think, of the surrounding neighbourhoods are that you've got these big schemes, but you don't necessarily have the surrounding context. And I suppose for me, th my, my anxiety and reservation looking at these projects, I think as projects, they're very impressive in different ways uh, and attracting, you know, I think it's very good that Here East is attracting tech. I think it's very good that Barking Riverside is providing some level of social housing but the moment I hear that social housing is available for sale for a very cheap, affordable, at 370000 I sort of think, I, I mean, I've got children in their 20s, and we bought our house in Limehouse in 1984 for what seemed like a lot of money. But um, I don't see them, and of course because they're my children, they're, so to speak, middle class, being able to afford 370000 um, And what I think is potentially problematic, and you can begin to feel it happening in Stratford and Maryland, is you get these huge tower blocks, and they are available for 400000 500000 600000 and they do push prices up. Obviously, what's happening um, in the Farrell scheme, and I can see if you're looking at the economy of London, it's a very good thing to attract Asian industry, but those blocks are going to be available for Asians. <laughs> I mean, Chinese to buy. It's good for the sort of multicultural element of London, but it doesn't seem to me that these schemes do address what I think is an obvious issue for London, is that that whole swathe of um, southwest London, Vauxhall, is these huge great tower blocks, uh, which are being put up at great speed and apparently being sold on plan uh, in Singapore and Malay and you know, they, they, they presumably wouldn't be built if there wasn't confidence on the part of the developers that they would be sold. But they're not actually addressing what is the biggest problem for us, I think, as a culture in London, which is how we're going to house 
people who are going to be working in the less well-paid parts of London. So, so I think my, my question is a single question, which is, yes, it's very good to have these big, large-scale infrastructure developments, including, interestingly, which I didn't know about, and I found extremely interesting what's happening in Parking Riverside. But is there a risk that all it does is fuel what's happened in other parts of London, increasing house prices, which means that the fundamental problem of how we service London in the next 30, 40, 50 years through lower-paid workers and where they live, and for them to be able to live somewhere which is reasonably accessible. That, for me, is the big issue. So. I guess I have another um, sort of strange relation here where the Mayor of London is sort of related to each one of these projects, but probably won't stop me from being a bit critical. Um, thank you very much. It was really interesting to see the different scales of projects. Um, I think I'm sort of going to dive straight into my kind of questions. Uh, I feel like all of the projects had the, a kind of quite big focus on growth and jobs and technology and the kind of economic functioning of these places. Matthew did touch on people more so, but I feel like I didn't really get a sense of the kind of social fabric of these places. I think East London has a very rich history, um, really hi rich history of industry, which is complex. And, you know, I don't believe industry is dying in London either, and that's a whole other conversation. But there's also a very rich history of different types of people living there and it being a place for immigrants coming into London and trade, you know, part of the docks. And I sort of don't ever believe that we start on a site with there being no context. I think context exists in many forms and it doesn't need to necessarily be buildings. There's, <coughs> like I said, there's history there as well. So I feel like I'd like to get a bit more of understanding of how the social fabric of these places has influenced what you're doing, which is what I feel like I didn't get a sense of. Another thing I sort of disagreed with was the kind of <coughs> connectivity aspect with, you know, with the Royal Albert Docks. It's this, the kind of selling point is that it's very well connected, but actually I think all of those really large infrastructure um, kind of interventions actually make the site very badly connected because it's so hard to get to. You have motorways, then you've got the city airport, then you've got the river. And actually, as a pedestrian, just from you know a neighbourhood 10 minutes away from that, people living in Newham, how are they actually going to access these sites? And what is the role of these developments for people living in the neighbourhood? I didn't really get a sense of that. And for me, working in regeneration, I'm kind of interested more in the sort of bottoms-up regeneration, like, you know, how are these huge developments influencing people who live there around this neighbourhood? You know, there are people who are there, and there needs to be... Well, I, I didn't get a sense of how these places are actually going to influence people, not just in terms of economic growth, but more in terms of social infrastructure and what opportunities are there <coughs> for people in the wider area. And... It was touched on a little bit with Hackneywick, but I think that there's more to it than just proximity that I'd like to hear a bit more. 
And then I guess it's sort of following on from Charles, this idea of who are you actually designing for? Um, and what it is, what, you know, yes, it's a master plan, but I'm really, really nervous about flexibility. I think we need specificity to get good design. Otherwise, if you're building a dis like a generic office block or a generic residential for you don't know for who or for what businesses or what sort of industry, you end up with very, very generic development with any lack of character or sense of place. Okay, I'm, I'm just going to repeat what everyone has said. <laughs> um, so maybe it's good to, to quickly describe where I come from. I, uh, apart from being German and affected by Brexit, I, I, uh, I live in East London. I live quite close uh, between here East and the docks, so I'm quite familiar with it. I've been living there from before the Olympics, so I've been uh, quite a wit witness to the changes. Um, since 2008, we've been, as a company, um, situating ourselves in Hackney Wick, working quite closely in understanding Hackney Wick and its transformation quite close up um, and have done a lot of research about it, both independently and for the LLDC and for different bodies. We are a space studio um, tenant, so we are offered to move into the crust. And I also work in King's Cross, again, another environment that's been quoted as a desirable, where uh, lots of uh, red smurfs, I call them, walk around with red hats uh, to police you in a very often uncomfortable way. The Olympic Park, you can't fly a kite, you get arrested. Um, and these are the kind of environments that are being promoted by the kind of schemes that are being presented. And they're often driven by narratives of uh, kind of desire and success and need. Uh, I've experienced the Olympics where these narratives, narratives have been imposed on you very strongly. The new E20 will be the answer to all your dreams. Uh, the arc of opportunity, which kind of cuts all the way to the Royal Docks, is, is another threat, another narrative that's been imposed. Uh, I would even question the dire need for housing, uh, or at least this kind of housing, which was raised. So I've been, I guess what I'm saying is I think as architects, I think we have to find ways to resist joining into these narratives a little bit and maybe also be a bit critical of them. And I wonder how we can uh, achieve that um, to kind of have a bit more of that grit, of that honesty in these narratives that we put forward. Um, I guess that's one point. Uh, one, one good example might be um, this narrative of wasteland. Uh, it wasn't the wasteland where he East is now, was a really thriving uh, community allotment, which was given in perpetuity to London, which was a very diverse community. Uh, Morrow, with a famous restaurant, made a beautiful book about, a cookbook about that community and the dishes that were served. There was a cooperative housing for um, single, single people, which again is a kind of detail that's lost in London. Uh, what are the alternative housing models that we are promoting? Uh, now the narrative is Hackney Wick in its artist community uh, and, and shouldn't we embrace it? And how are we embracing it? I don't think there's enough affordable workspace being produced. What's interesting and where I think we fail to learn from Hackney Wick is that the affordable workspace was on ground level very big and gave a kind of uh, 
an opportunity to fail cheaply. So it was affordable space in which you could test ideas and fail. I don't think on the gantry in the third floor it's the same kind of environment. And we've been kind of uh, lobbying quite hard with the LLDC for this affordable workspace. I don't think it can be accommodated in these models. So I'm, I would like to have a kind of more balanced narrative and kind of uh, a more honest narrative, I think, for, for those affected. The second, and I feel that's really important, is what kind of models are we actually developing that, that might speak of an alternative? If you go to a lot of other big cities, Berlin is a good example, you have the Baugruppen, you have kind of a lot of variety of how we might develop the city with different values embedded into them. Uh, and I feel London is depriving itself from, from this idea that we develop different models for different values. Uh, I don't, we all don't want to live in the same kind of environment, which is quite corporatized and sanitized, I would say. So how can we kind of achieve that? And again, there are probably examples. How can we, as architects, help scale them and help kind of really make them a part of our, our city? So that's another question. The third one is the idea of connectivity. I remember sitting in a meeting with a lot of artists and the head of the LLDC, and one artist stood up and said, I really don't want to be connected. It's so great not to be connected because so, we are kind of free. It's a bit more unregulated. We are not, there's a different kind of space that the city needs. If you connect us, it means that the rents go up, we get pushed out, etc. So what kind of, kind of spaces do we need where also different cultures can grow, where we are less pressured, uh, where the city can reinvent themselves from the bottom in different ways? And I, again, I do feel that kind of is, is being pushed out of London, and London becomes a little bit less interesting because of this. Um, finally, who we designed for. Uh, my daughter goes into the local primary school. Uh, I notice a lot of uh, friends moving away, and it's uh, to do with affordability. So how can we, again, it goes down to models, how can we uh, really, and that's a bigger question I think we all grapple with mm. in our practice, how can we really resist this kind of neoliberal capital-driven push, uh, and what is the role of the architect? I mean, what mm. is our role as practitioner to kind of push back this force, uh, I wonder? I don't know. That's my rambling done. <laughs> uh, don't know if it deserves an applause, but I'm done. Well, uh, who would like to start, like giving a reply to to these thoughts? To respond to the respondents, <laughs> yeah. This is a fifteen all it's in tennis, and. Uh, <laughs> Um, I mean, I think I can agree with a lot of the things that are said. You know, it's very difficult when you've got 10 minutes to present a large scheme to cover all of the issues. I think a common thread amongst your responses is, is the so, what I would call the social side of, 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 of the developments and the buildings that we're involved with. Um, it, Gavin Poole, who's our client at Here East, um, has a fantastic photograph on the wall of his office, which is of um, Gandhi when he visited uh, the UK in the 1940s to sign independence and he was um, he was offered uh, the chance of staying in the Hilton with all the other dignitaries and he said he didn't want to stay there he wanted to stay with the real people of London um, and, there's, and there's a famous story about him 
um, coming and staying with the pearly king and queen in East London. And there's this great picture of Gandhi with the, um, this couple who are wearing all of the um, regalia of the pearly king and queen. And it's Gavin Poole's grandparents. Um, and he keeps that in his office because it's a reminder to him of his roots. And I do think that you know, a lot of what Here East is about is trying to um, you know, sort of overlay, if you like, you know, the building that was left post-Olympics and try and bring it down to a human scale and, and to think about the legacy in terms of affordable workspace. Um, so the artist studios, which you know, might not be perfect, being perched up on a, on a shelf on the third floor, um, are actually genuinely affordable. You know, at £15 a square foot, they're actually less than affordable because affordable is, you know, without sounding too much. Can I correct you? They're £23 a square foot. If you do the service <laughs> charge, they're 23 but the £15 a square foot is rent. You know. um, I've, I've I don't want to sound like a, like, like a Labour politician uh, getting the figures wrong, um, but that is less than affordable rent. And the, genuinely, the ambition is to create affordable space there. And, and, I, and I know that Delancey, who are behind the project, are very keen to promote a variety of residential offers in East Village, which is which they're also doing. The, the, the only thing I thought was a bit disturbing about what you said, because I could see, I mean, the history of the abolition of the allotments, it's happened, and you've got Olympic Park. So what you're doing seems to me to be adding a great deal to that side of the Rivoli. But last time I went to Hackney Wick, it didn't look like you showed it, of being densely uh, still full of old warehouses which, which are there in order to be revived, a huge, vast amount of it had been flattened. And that did seem to me an incredible lost opportunity because actually Hackney Wick is one of the places which does give that area of the town a sense of history, of surviving industry, mm. of, of exactly what you're talking about, a kind of texture which is incredibly hard to create de novo. So actually somehow I do feel it's unbelievably important, as was implied, to try and retain what there is rather than just have this kind of tower block mentality. I think that is happening. I mean, you're right to say large areas of Hackney Wick uh, and, and Fish Island are, are changing, but a large area are protected and um, tower hamlets um, for Fish Island and... Uh, um, Hackney for um, the Wick yeah. are preserving large areas as much as they can. They're, they're uh, commercial uh, pressures. You know, I'm happy to be reassured. I think, it's true. I think that's the problem. It's, 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 it's relying on commercial developers to yeah. uh, keep something which commercially is not viable necessarily anymore. And I think that's the issue with compared with Berlin and public investment versus private sector in this country and level of speculation of, you know. You, you can't keep vast parts of East London not developed and kept in a particular way when all of it is private ownership unless you change the planning system and you stop development and speculation. So I think it's it's a kind of a self-perpetrating motion. If you look at Robert Docks for 20 years, nothing has happened. There was one building built there and nobody can actually make the site work. It takes an external investor to make the site work, which brings all the good things for the... And I can talk a lot about what we do. But, but the planning system does exist in order to preserve historic properties. But that's in, just in the Barking, we were shown what I'd never seen, the photograph of the equivalent of Battersea Power Station out in the east, which had been flattened. So that... Um, and, and in the docks, what I saw of the new building on the north side of the docks, 
I mean, it may be that there isn't enough history to maintain, but if there is history, as there is in Hackney Wick, then it behoves us to make sure that the planning laws are sufficiently strenuous in order to make sure they are, are maintained. That, that would be maybe. <coughs> I think Peter's slides were really interesting where you demonstrated or illustrated you know, that the population of Birmingham is moving to London every 10 years. I mean, yeah. it's the growth of London that we're all faced I mean, with. I mean, and how we're stopped we, by yeah. a green belt where yeah. you can't move out. But where do you develop? Where do you do this? I mean, no, I'm, a, I'm in favour of development. I mean, I think... It's completely obvious what you said, that East London is the area which is going to be redeveloped, and it should Berlin be. Berlin is the so size of Birmingham. Berlin is... Yeah, but for me, it's, yeah. I mean, how do, we, how do we as architects kind of help create uh, answers that are more feasible? For example, the community land trust, which was proposed for the Olympic Park, has been uh, kind of edited out very swiftly by Boris Johnson. How, do we can, how can we collectively kind of push other models? Because really the environments that are being proposed, which are take uh, King's Cross as their kind of, whatever, guiding light, I think they are kind of gentrifying monocultural... Uh, but I think King's Cross development is fantastic. It's, it's, it's awful. It's really <laughs> awful. I've been there before. I mean, and you, what's, what was there before was not nice. It's a, it's, first of all, it's a privatized public space, so there's a kind of whole issue of what are you actually allowed to do. Yeah. It's yeah. because we rely on public sector to develop land. That's how it is. Yeah, but I th shouldn't we kind of have some kind of democratic principles to kind of push back? Can't we as architects invest yeah, some yeah. of our effort? They're very exclusive spaces. Yeah? They're kind of a very high-end market. The Olympic mm -hmm. Village is a kind of... Is, is so uh, tailored to a certain market that you can sell it off that actually... Uh, you only have one and two bedrooms apartments, so it's actually also not serving a local need, really. That kind of the houses that are developed. D just so my question is, how can we how can we push back and create a kind of different kind of environment? But, but uh, are you talking about the the, the way the space is used as opposed to the quality of the space? Because there's uh, what 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 we're trying to do at Parking Riverside is is design that space, and then. What we'd agreed with the council is it costs a lot of money to maintain those spaces. The council won't adopt the roads, the public areas, the jetty, the riverside, the riverside walkways. So we, so the, so the company that owns the land at the moment is going to um, effectively transfer the freehold to a trust, community interest company. The residents effectively have to pay a service charge every year. Currently, it's four hundred pounds a year. Um, and on that board, and I'm a board member at the moment, but I'll resign when there's a capacity of homes there. It will be about 6,000 homes. I will resign, and the residents and the major, the major estate stockholders will manage that estate. The problem is, you, you, I hear what you're saying, but as a space, I would consider it as a very nice space. How you procure events and use the space is a slightly different thing and how you fund managing it is a slightly different thing. Challenging, of course, but... I mean, I mean going back to, um, to your point, I, I would argue that King's Cross is actually, a, you know, a, a better example compared with a lot mm. of what we're seeing mm. in London. You know, mm. if you compare it with, let's say, uh, the, some of the developments around um, Stratford, where, you know, it's been short-termism, it's been retail-led sort of out-of-town park, um, some of the quality of building is pretty thin, frankly, <coughs> you know, mm. um, 
I think at King's Cross they took a long-term view. They spent, um, you know, some of the funding, which was the, the BT pension fund, was, was actually not looking for returns for 10, 20, 30 years. So the developer was able to invest, um, go through a long time in developing schemes, employing some of the uh, better architects in the UK, I can say that because we weren't involved with that. Um, no, but a, a variety of architects have produced a variety of different schemes. You know, there are different tenures to um, residential uh, offers there, both public and private sector. So, you know, it might not be perfect compared with, um, you know, places of Berlin or other areas, but compared with a lot of London, I actually think it's pretty good. Um, and, you know, we... we we should be learning lessons if we are going to have um, the Mayor um, Sadiq's talking about good growth. You know, if we are going to have good growth as opposed to growth at any cost, which I think is the worry, then I would, I would argue that King's Cross does point in a positive direction, potentially. I think for me, sorry, um, one of the clever things about King's Cross is bringing the universities into the heart of... The development mm -hmm. and bringing a mix of use and I think for me that good growth is very much about inclusivity and integration and also about different mix of uses and that, I think that's where Andres is coming from but you know as an architect what's your kind of what is your power to be able to create visions for these different types of mixes and different models rather than saying oh it's going to be a flexible building that can be anything is kind of thinking about different opportunities spatially and also how it weaves in with um, with areas. But on the other side, from the kind of more policy and kind of the top-down approach, is, is why I joined the public sector, was to be able to try and influence that with a design background. And I think that's a really um, important opportunity for more <coughs> architects to think about working more top-down and working and influencing the policy with these ideas of top, like bottoms-up design and what's important to the city and characters of places, because I think you can have an impact. But I think, the, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, King's Cross is much better kind of design and um, quality than, than Stratford, um, sadly. Um, but I think... You can't fly a kite in either place, can you? <laughs> No, but I think what's interesting, what, what is an interesting model is... I don't know where he's been flying, but you can fly a kite. You can't. No, I've been arrested. I've done it. <laughs> I've, I've how, how long was your line? There is a, a maximum length of line. Within, it's by law 42, I was informed. It's after, after three minutes, the, the guards come with you. There's a very short, a small area in the north of the park where you're allowed to fly a kite. But it's a kind of policing, it's more, I don't have to fly a kite, but it's a kind of policing that is inherent in these spaces. Mm. And Anna Minton writes about it very kind of eloquently. But what I'm interested in King's Cross is actually the Camley Street Community Land Trust. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a very large-scale community land trust that tries to develop very innovatively exactly what you're promoting to, to have industry and living in the same building at the same time, uh, in perpetuity affordable. And I think these are completely different environments which I think we should encourage and demand for our cities. And my question is more how, with all the effort we put into our projects, can we kind of steer London more into this direction? What is our agency? 
That's you saying. By having these debates, talking about it, and actually raising the issues all the time. Because, I mean, we, we have clients which we raise these issues as well. It, it, I think it's actually the debate is what, how we can do it. But then is it working? It. Do we have to find I think it's strategy? working because, you know, I think, you know, King's Cross is a good example of something which is moving to the right direction after other projects. So I think it, it's probably working better than, say, five, ten years ago. We've got to the point where we should ask questions. <laughs> the floor is maybe. <laughs> yeah, now we open the floor for questions from the audience. So, is there any questions? I was interested in the examples you were giving. I just would like to see if there's, there's one more maybe from you, which is, is there any place in London that's just being created just like that and just works? Or is that actually a, an ideal that's quite hard to achieve and we have to accept that places do form over time? I, I like uh, Matthew's points about, you know, kind of deciding what we're going to use as spaces as we go. But actually, are we being unfair judging places just like that and saying, hey, the plan looks like this it ain't going to work, or should we be accepting, you know what, this is going to take 5, 10, 20 years to, to become a place, and, I don't know, slow down a bit, maybe. I had a slide, which I took out, actually, which was of Glastonbury, and a guy, um, the first year Glastonbury was on, and then an image of what it is today, which is 90,000, 120,000 people go there, and this city. And that's taken 30 years to grow from a tent into a city of, that happens once a year or every other, every other year. It's the same thing. You can't parachute in a, a master plan like that and expect it to work. It has to grow embryonically over time. But you've got to set certain parameters about design, coding, expectation, and management. Um, it's such a challenge. It, there's no question. It's not, there's no easy answer to it. Um, I've been oh, looking... Actually, Matt, you didn't mention, I thought it was interesting, you didn't mention the architect who had drawn up the master plan, <clears throat> nor did you give much indication... I, I sense, maybe wrongly, that you were struggling a bit to get architects to do the sorts of buildings you felt they should be doing. Maybe that's misinterpretation. I, I think... Well, <laughs> I paid him a hell of a lot of money to do that master plan. <laughs> But, but, but you know, the image I'm happy, you I'm, showed at the I'm riverside with, was yeah, a bit I, bleak. The you thing showed is that, it as being a bit bleak. I mean, there's, I probably showed you two technical drawings. It's those, <laughs> it's those renders that you really want to see. But I, I, you know, I do find they look a bit samey. You know, they look like they look like Greenwich Peninsula. They look like every other town. Isn't scheme that the challenge? To it, it is a challenge, and and the thing is that. Um, you're right that it's got to respond to context, and, and, and I'm lucky in that I've got a masses of history to this site, and I've got physical assets that I can protect and draw on and use to influence the architecture. Um, and design, different design teams approach it in different ways, but um, the mentality that I'm trying to promote is, as you describe, it's in order to take it to the market, and from a very commercial point of view for me, I'm competing with... Yeah. These guys, particularly you down the road, <laughs> I've got to sell homes and I've got to sell half of them. But you know, there's half of it is affordable. Some of it will be private rent, PRS. Some of it will be uh, shared ownership. Some of it will be market. And uh, I think it's the nature of the funding model again. I think it's economics is driving a lot of that, unfortunately or fortunately. And I think it's difficult to imagine architecture in but, 20 but, years. But, but like the, the athletes' village is designed by very well-known architects each. But 
they are incredibly homogenous. Mm. Mm. I mean, it, it is, if you think of it as an ideal city, there was a lot of money available for that bit of the park. They commissioned the best architects, and they produced very bland mm. blocks of absolutely no real architectural character, I think. And I think that's a problem. I think to come back to the question and, and to relate yeah. to your point, I, th I think the, where I can see some of the best examples in London is where you've got the, 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 the estates taking a long-term view, like one of our clients, Howard Walden Estate, have managed their portfolio, their land, and have done so for hundreds of years. So they make some strategic decisions about certain streets where that you know they want to keep the independent uh, retailers they are prepared to put out um, shops to affordable rent they they are prepared to mix the tenures to manage their estate because they're taking a long-term view so i think the problem that you're describing in the the athletes thoughts of athletes village um, is is the fact it was done at breakneck speed. There was a set of very prescribed rules that the, um, the uh, Olympic authorities required. You know, every athlete had to have a certain amount of square meterage. You know, every athlete had to have access to two lifts because if one lift broke down, you couldn't have some guy um, who was going to be running the 100 metres the next day, complaining he missed out on the gold medal because he was forced to walk up <laughs> so many flights of stairs. So there was some completely stupid housing layouts, mm. totally dictated by the um, IOC, um, which subsequently have tried to be retrofit into to make 3,500 homes. So, and it was all done at breakneck speed with a cost-cutting economy. So, you know, there were mistakes made. And, and I think someone like Howard de Walden and the other big estates, you know, do take a view over hundreds of years. And long-term stewardship of the place. Exactly that. I'm glad somebody's brought up the big estates. And Charles earlier mentioned the planning system. The, the big estates in London really are not so much the Howard de Waldens or the Groveners, they are the local authorities. London boroughs are the biggest estates in London and they've found it very difficult, I think, to manage their areas in a way that would meet some of the aims uh, that have been mentioned. So the, and the emerging identity of East London, as we've seen in the schemes that you've described, is really being driven by either national government or <coughs> regional government. And uh, the local authorities are being bypassed. So I suppose my question to all of you really is, would you like to see a rather more dynamic uh, set of ideas coming out of the local authorities in these areas and that they should have more resources with which to operate a more dynamic and active planning system, not just for the preservation, but also for the kind of um, visioning of the future, which is something they don't perhaps do as well as they should. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I think um, with basically in the 60s, local authorities were much more proactive in developing housing and were visionary in shaping their places. And, you know, more recently with public sector cuts, it's shrunk. The public sector has shrunk. So there's this, there are local authorities that are coming up with interesting models to be more proactive in Croydon. Um, specifically has set up a new company that they're proactively developing housing and it's called Brick by Brick. And I know Hackney are looking into different models and it's definitely happening. Uh, I think a parallel conversation is actually the perception 
of working in public sector and working in local authorities in you know 40 years ago it was in architecture schools it was seen as something to look if you join public sector and working in local authorities it was a really great fantastic job while now it isn't as much anymore so one of the things I'm working on on the social enterprise is about attracting talented people to the public sector working in delivering more housing and delivering more kind of proactive planning and uh, I think yeah, I think absolutely the public sector needs to take a much more proactive role rather than <coughs> a reactive role in what's happening at the moment. I don't really know what I want to ask, but I'm born in London and I live in a tower block in Hackney. I work in the charity sector um, part-time and then I have my own little business on the side and I probably earn less than £20,000 in a year. Um, and I just find... Um, just the talk of figures and these large expanses of flats being built across London, which is my city, and I was born in, in the late 60s. Um, I just feel like it's losing its character, and um, I'm scared, and I feel like I should have a say in all of what's going on. I live in a tower block with um, a tenant who just died a month ago, and we had a party in his flat last Sunday and it was the most beautiful event, Bernie and his story. Um, and I just feel like, yeah, I'm scared about the change and what's happening. And I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful for you three over there and your questions. And my dad's an architect, um, so I've always been interested in buildings and I grew up in, you know, an architect's flat. Um, but I just feel like, yeah, it's really important to connect with people and affordability and I don't I'm worried about affordability because it doesn't make the, the the term affordability makes absolutely no sense I don't understand how people who earn 25,000 pounds a year would ever be able to afford that kind of property so I do feel like architects do have you know they should be standing up and saying actually I don't know that's it's a statement more than a question but I just wanted to make it while I was here Thank you. It's an interesting one because that is, it, it's what's driving the value is 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 the, is the need. So you're in a situation where um, the mayor's trying to bring in um, policy to allow Londoners to have a first say in terms of housing that's uh, goes on the market. And indeed, uh, one of the conditions on on my scheme is that. We have to market it, uh, market products, uh, affordable and market products. Um, you can only sell them to, uh, there's a catchment or there's a restriction on how many you can sell so you don't get people buying up, buy, buy to lets, you don't get rogue landlords. I think to give you some comfort, there is policy that's emerging that I've seen from, from the Mayor of London about how to deal with that. Um, but at the end of the, end of the day, if, if the fellow who comes in after he's looking to pay, who will pay more for property, it's, a, it's about the demand and the supply. So it's a it, how, how you respond to that is looking at the house building industry and how they are feeding the market, whether they're drip feeding it, whether it's driving. So my challenge is to deliver 600 homes a year on that one site, which is almost like your Olympic Park model of house building. You know, you, you're churning it out at such a breakneck speed 
to try and respond to that market? It's probably less to do with design, but a friend of mine was mm. uh, trying to sell a flat he bought in Amsterdam, central Amsterdam, really nice flat. He bought it about five, six years ago, and uh, there's no there's no bite to, uh, there's no kind of private landlords really there, and if there is, the, the, the actual prices are kept, so you can't do that. So effectively, his, the value of his flat after six years, central Amsterdam is the same as he bought it so many years ago. So there's no speculation, there's no anything like that. So unless this changes, there will be the endless bubble of, gro of growth. And we as architects, we can design the best no, buildings. It's not your At some point, we are trying all the yeah. time to work on that. But it's the politics and economics, I think. And it's politics from central government as well, of, yeah. you know, coming, you know, the right to buy, that totally destroys the fabric of... From other countries to buy flats that they don't live in in London. You know, the whole development on that um, down in southwest London on the river is just disgusting. I feel like it's just not my London anymore. Yeah. And I'm, I just, I don't really know what to do. What can I do as an individual to make changes? And there's lots of people I know who feel yeah. the same way. I think, I think it's really problematic when people in London feel like London is changing and they don't have a stake in it. Yeah. Uh, and as a local resident, I am part of a community land trust as mm. one, one model of communities being able to take ownership and drive governance and drive, you know, the say on a particular site and it not be, you know, and I think more and more there are kind of, you know, it's, it's about activism and kind of fighting your corner. I mean, the thing which seems to me to come out of this is to look, after all, things are being di done differently in Berlin and the Netherlands and to examine and analyse what the models are and whether they can be used in London to London's benefit. I mean, the system may feel impossible to change, but I don't think it's unimaginable that you could persuade Sadiq Khan, for whom this must be a big issue, mm. to consider different ways of doing development in East London, which has great opportunities. The, the thrust of the conversation is what can we as architects do? And at, yeah. what, at one level, you know, we can't do very much because we're at the beck and call of our clients. But actually, I think at another level, we can be advocates. We can point out yes. examples of good practice. Yeah. You know, we can look at Berlin or, or uh, the Netherlands. Um, or, or Canada, actually. We have clients um, who are looking at um, pr private um, rental apartments mm. that are affordable, you know, adding more diversity to the housing market. And one of the big problems we have in London that 50% of all the homes are being delivered by five major house builders. Mm. Um, and we, you know, that isn't allowing the market to be diverse. So I think, you know, we can promote other examples of good practice and we can, um, you know, and I think uh, you know, our practices do literally that. We, you know, we, we are trying where we can to push forward better ideas for, for how London can attract good growth, um, which the mayor is promoting at the moment. Um, I think, Pooja, you made an interesting point about social fabric that we haven't gone back to, and I think that it sort of goes to the point here, which is potentially about community. And I wondered if we could invite each of you to talk a little bit how you're using or thinking about design to engage with sort of sense of community and building up or developing or responding to an idea of social fabric and social growth? I think the role of the architect has changed a lot in the, in the 30 years I've been practicing as an architect. It, it used to be that we would swirl a cape, deliver a design, and that's what you got. You know, that's what the architect had envisaged. Well, it's not like that. It's much more of a collaborative process now where we are engaged with a wide group of people 
involved in the building industry. And, and um, I think a lot of that consultation and liaison is with stakeholders and users. So I think once you understand that, once you do, um, as an architect, get out, meet people, meet people who are going to be using your buildings, often, more than often, the, the user client is a very different person from the funder client. So you might be getting instructions from uh, the person paying for the building in the first instance, but they're actually not the people who will be using it. So we have learnt, I think, um, as a profession, certainly our practice, to listen more, to engage with people, and to try and talk and understand about what people want from their built environment. It's not just buildings. Clearly, it's the space around buildings that we've got to put a lot of focus and attention to. Um, and I, so I do think that's happening. You know, and we've talked about some examples of better practice. Um, you know, we, we have to be um, both humble and ambitious. So we have to be humbitious in our, in our approach to architecture. Uh, can I just say one thing which we haven't really looked at in this debate is the use of housing for primary members of our communities, such as nurses, doctors, and police, and first-time buyers. Actually, at a certain point, they go in different directions. Now, if you're a doctor or a nurse and you're living in one area, you want to either sell your property and move to another property because your career is going in a different direction, or are you going to be literally connected to renting all your life, which I think is actually not what this debate is all about. We are actually trying to create aspiration in our society wherever we are. And I think that's something which we all have to understand. And actually, one of the speakers was absolutely brilliant during the speeches, <clears throat> to say that <clears throat> we were looking at university developments in London. Now, if you look at the university developments in London, which began really with Kensington and Chelsea after the Great Exhibition, <clears throat> then it went to Fitzroy. And now, strangely enough, Stratford is now attracting a lot of student accommodation. And so we now need to understand how does that fit in with our general village atmosphere? How do we create our communities like Deptford used to be. Deptford is still a secure society in many ways because you've got three generations of people living in that community. We need to control that. Funnily enough, the most isolating communities nowadays are in places like Chelsea and Kensington, where families don't have their connections. They move in and out far too quickly from their accommodation. Now, as architects, are you looking to keep people in a community or you are trying to move them on after 5, 10, or 15 years. Sorry, I shouldn't have wrapped it on, but I, <laughs> I will say something. <laughs> I think as architects, we're always about building communities, and we're trying to do this in every project, really, especially residential projects. And to answer your questions, uh, we do go to local forums, there's local, there's all sorts of things we do all the time, trying to engage with the community to understand the place. Mm -hmm. However, again, I think economics sometimes precludes people from staying in the same place. We work with some of uh, Dolphin Living, for example, who, have, who are providing key worker housing. And they are desperate for sites. There's not enough sites for them to build key worker housing in central London. So it's economics, unfortunately, a lot of it. But we do engage. We have a project just around where we are. And we kind of know everybody who is around us. We talk to them. We get the local school. We, you have to do that. And I, I think, Roger, you're right. 30 years ago, probably. I mean, probably not me 30 years ago. It wasn't like that, but now you have to. And we want to do that because actually people thank you and believe you at the end of it. 
how do we keep people in the same place over the years? But you have, I have a big enough site to do first time buyers, family housing, older person's housing, all, you know, and, and try to start to code it so that I know which parts of the site need to be accessible, which need private gardens, which need, depending on your needs as you go through your stages of your life, your career, um, sites like the one that I'm working on are big enough to accommodate that mix and it's something that we are thinking about, yeah. I think central London has problems but, you know, exactly that's why we're moving east, I think. One more question. <laughs> Um, I, to me, it strikes me that the biggest issue for London, the crisis at the moment, is affordable housing and going forward for the next 20 years. And the way we develop housing at the moment is totally influenced by the market. So even the affordable housing is going to be unaffordable in a short time unless it's actual genuine social housing and affordable in perpetuity. So I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about what London, the mayor anyone can actually do to try and change the formula of how we deliver housing so it's not constantly being driven out of the reach of most people by the market? The only thing I would say to end not on a consistently pessimistic note is <laughs> that I do think we are underestimating what the significance of Crossrail would be because traditionally when these new lines open up, they do have a big impact. And the effect of Crossrail will be to open up areas for relatively convenient and fast um, communication from those areas. That's the problem. So I, I agree with your analysis. That, that's why I think that is the fundamental problem, which we, you know, it's clear we're all talking about, but none of us so far that I've heard are coming up with any very convincing solutions. But the fact is that there will be areas where there is cheaper, I mean, as you can tell, my view is you need to pay attention as much to the existing housing stock as to new build. I think it's an interesting question. What I see, what I witness, is a lot of speculation based on land values, based on pieces of paper. You know, um, a site that's got low value gets a planning permission. That the value is in the piece of paper, the planning permission, and that the planning permission's traded, and someone else buys it, and they enhance the uh, design and get a bit more value out of it, squeeze the pips out of the site, and sell it on again to and so the. Uh, to a third and fourth and fifth developer, each iteration is adding more value to the site, but the value is actually the piece of paper. Whereas if the planning permission was granted to that site, um, not to the speculator, but belonged to the applicant of the site who had to then develop it, and you're able to capture the land value in the way that happens in Germany and, and, and Berlin, mm. then you would avoid all that speculation and um, development values going up before you even build anything. The value needs to be in what you build, not in the piece of paper. Well, Sorry to my development. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have, unfortunately, more time for questions for, for the audience, but I invite you to continue the discussion in, uh, at the library with a glass of wine. Uh, also, I'd like to let you know that on the 22nd, we have another event, part of this series, Design Urban Identity, where we will be exploring the, new, the future character of West London. 
now um, give a big applause to our panel of respondents. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.